Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest is Jill Linehan. We go back to the School of G days when she used to uh, work there. And I wanted to have her on, you know, catching up and also to talk about her experience in as an adjunct uh, instructor. Uh, so for those of you who are in K through 12 and you're thinking about sort of how can I do a side hustle, but maybe entrepreneurship isn't your thing we, we've all heard about adjuncts, right? We, we know what they are, but we, we're going to dig deeper into that work and how she got it and tips on how you yourself may get into the game. And we'll see what else Jill has for us. So for those who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Jill? Sure. So Dr. Will and I go way back. I worked for Schoology when it was a teeny tiny startup and now they're pretty big time. Um, so I met Dr. Will several years ago, been listening to the podcast, keeping up with everything. Um, I've had quite an adventure since I was with Schoology. I worked as an administrator at a charter school. I have worked as the adjunct faculty, currently my day job. Uh, is at Rosetta Stone, where there are two sides of that program. There's a language side and a literacy side. I work primarily on the literacy side, educating folks in and around the area of Philadelphia on how to use data to use data to provide database literacy instruction for struggling readers. So I do keep myself fairly busy these days. Awesome. Awesome. So what do you do <laughs> as the adjunct? Is it, is it something where someone gives you, hey, you're going to be teaching, you know, ED 539, whatever, and they give you a syllabus or do they, do you bring it all yourself? I mean, how does that work out? All right. So great question. So the way I started working as an adjunct is the way I started working every single position I've ever had in the last say 10 to 15 years. It was serendipitous opportunity. I was working at a conference and I was presenting, I was providing feedback on demo lessons that teachers were doing. And the chair of the clinical placement program at this university at Wilmington University came to me and said, I like what you do and I want you on my team here's what you need to do. It's every Wednesday at this time, teachers go into, um, excuse me, teacher candidates go into teacher classrooms, they teach lessons, you need to support them and evaluate them and coach them and so on and so forth. So I said to myself, I've been a coach, I've been um, somebody who facilitates professional learning, this is taking everything I've done. And of course, I worked as a classroom teacher and mixing it all together. So I had a plan. I, I knew where I wanted to take my students. I knew what I wanted them to learn. But like you said, the university has a syllabus. So to some extent, I have followed that syllabus. I haven't gone completely rogue. But as you know, at a university, there's a lot of theory. There's a lot of things that you kind of need to know. But when you get right down to it, Education is about what happens during the ins and outs every day in the classroom and how we provide effective instruction, how we evaluate ourselves as instructors, how we reflect on instructors. So I've taken the syllabus, added my spin on it and, and put together my course, which to be honest with you, I don't know the number of it, but it's the title is Practicum One and it is the first clinical placement for university students at, at Wilmington University. So these are newbies for all intents and purposes. So we, we do a lot of work on pedagogy, a lot of work on um, 
data and reflection and we get them ready to teach lessons in the classroom in front of live students. So how did you prepare for it? Um, when you've never done it and, and now it's like, I mean, of course you brought to the table your years of experience mm -hmm. in many roles. So you were prepared on that front, but to sit there and teach within this framework or constraints or rules of, of the university and the classroom, their expectations, how did you prepare to actually do that work? So the university has kind of like this mentor situation when they bring on new instructors. So I actually was able to co-teach with an experienced instructor in that program. So I watched her and then she just, she let me jump in whenever. I mean, we went over the syllabus briefly, but she is an ED and an educational diagnostician in her role. Um, so she brought a ton of experience as well. And we just worked together to make it work. We, we were watching lesson plans and we said, this is where they're missing the mark. So next week lesson is, for example, on sharing objectives at the beginning of your class so that students know what they're expected to do by the end of the lesson. So it's really not that unlike what the expectation of a K-12 teacher is and that we are providing hands-on instruction. We are modeling the idea of facilitating rather than directing instruction when we're meeting with the students. We model best practices. For example, we do Jamboards, we do Nearpod. Right now we're all online. So we're promoting those technology tools that our students can use now, but then that we, we expect that they will use that, that they will continue to build their teacher toolkit um, through this experience on into managing their own classroom. So working with a partner was really my key to success. Somebody who understood the system, somebody who kind of knew where those edges were and those lines that, you know, you may not want to cross. Um, so that, that has really been beneficial to me. And here I am a few years later, I am still working with the same partner. Um, she brings her experiences as an educational diagnostician. I bring all my technology experience. So our students get a lot from us that I don't know necessarily that they would get outside of the work that we do. Because we, we just have really unique and, and great experiences to bring to the class. And what is it like working with these teacher candidates who, because of their, their ages, if they are the traditional typical age, they have a lot of personal experience with devices and the internet and using technology for a variety of ways. But when you are then teaching them how to maybe instead of just uh, listening to app, you know, listening to things or apps on your phone, how you may now can use that phone to create videos in your classroom where your students can start creating videos to provide evidence. What is it like working with them to sort of get them to understand how that, that technology that they have been using so intuitively is such a part of their life can now be used as a technology tool? And I think there's two facets to that. So one, part of the exam that teachers need to pass in order to receive licensure and sort of certification requires videotaping, requires a video component, a reflection, and, and that is getting them closer to their certification. So we start that process here in the first clinical placement. Every lesson they teach needs to be videotaped. And then the college keeps all of that in their database. So I can go back at any time and I can watch a lesson. Or one of the things um, that I haven't done yet, but I'd like to do next semester is pull out a variety of lessons and have my students use our scoring rubric 
to evaluate others to kind of help internalize what the expectations are for them and what does it look like to get that three, that four, that five um, when they are evaluated. Now, in terms of them understanding how the tools they use become tools that can help them not only personally, but professionally, I will be honest with you. I don't know that that has been intuitively stated, but it's really interesting because when I share with students, you have to video yourself. Oftentimes, believe it or not, the first question they say is, how am I going to do it? And the answer is phone, iPad, or webcam. Like it, it, it's interesting because we do make assumptions about students who in, in this, um, you know, 2020, let's say, are 18, 19, 20 years old, they grew up with the phone in their hand. But to your point, it's been the Snapchat, the Instagram and things like that. And now we're shifting the paradigm on, okay, I can use this to make myself a better professional. And I do think we need to continue to send that message to the folks um, that, that are um, entering into the profession. Now, the other side of that is technology is a phenomenal tool to use in the classroom. But as you and I have discussed before, as you and I both know, it's the teacher that facilitates the use of that technology so that students are learning something, are engaging in something that they need to be successful on the next activity and so on. So what tends to happen with these folks as you know they are a little bit younger and an experience, let's say, they do activities, which are great, but where's the pedagogy? And that's when the evaluation process comes in because I will view a video, I will take notes, I will then have office hours with those that or those students and I will say, like anything, these are the things you did really well. I like that you used the Jamboard. I like that you took a risk with Nearpod, but what was your objective? Did the students meet the objective? And then we have that conversation. And I will say, I like the way that the course is designed because you will teach one lesson, receive feedback. And the idea is that you then apply that feedback in a second lesson where your score goes up on that rubric. So it, it really is about the hardware, the tools, and then of course the software that we are using to promote student learning. Mm -hmm. And I ask you that question because, you know, even in, in, in my job, you know, you, you hear this thing about digital natives and, you know, teachers are working with students and, they'll go, well, they don't know how to use a Google Doc or they don't know how to use this. And, and they're surprised, but you have to remind them they grew up with a phone, they grew up with a tablet and that's not a laptop. Mm -hmm. And they grew up again in a world that's full of apps mm -hmm. and not something where, okay, I have this keyboard and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And this is where you have to teach them how to use these things for educational purposes. You know, one teacher in our, in our district, she, we have this series called Teacher Tech Thursday, in which every Thursday, a live webinar is led by one of the teachers for other teachers to teach them how they're actually integrating technology in their classroom. And one of the teacher did oh, this amazing, does this amazing thing with um, Google Slides where kids can actually grab something and move it. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, okay, wow, okay, doing it, doing it. And she told me that every week she teaches her students sort of one thing about tech. Mm -hmm. So they're actually, while they're learning, they're building their technology skills in, in that way. And so I found that to be like, bravo for you, but an interesting point to point out where these kids are still learning 
as well, because in their world, it is far different, their usage and understanding of technology from what the teachers are, are trying to do. So March changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Normally, teaching online was relegated to the for-profits. And of course, you know, there were, uni there were schools around the country that may have had a degree program here or there, and online learning was mostly relegated to graduate school programs. But when March came, everybody had to go. And there were a lot of professors who were just not prepared for that. But you came from that background and having worked for Schoology, you understood what that meant. Any co for colleagues that you may have spoken to, who may have come to you, or you may have had conversations with, what was that like sort of explaining to them the shift of what does teaching look like when you are going from an in-person, mostly lecture format to now in this environment where quite honestly, most of it is student-driven? And that's a paradigm shift that I think it has been needed. And I think you would agree for quite some time. And I will say when March hit, my phone blew up with, how do I do this in Schoology? Should I use a discussion for this? What about an assignment? Wait a minute, how do I grade this? So that those are the issues that I was dealing with. And, and as much as I loved it, um, it was it was an interesting time for me because one, I wanted to say I was in your district three years ago. Where were you? Where was the coach? Well, you know, why is this something that you don't know? But, you know, that that's just being selfish and a little bit silly. It, on the other side of that was, um, you know, I don't know that anyone came to me directly and said, what is it like to teach online and what should I do? But where I was able to insert myself was a couple of things. Um, as you know, people tend to be very candid and honest on social media. So someone would say, I don't know how to do this. I'm spending all this time doing X, Y, and Z. And my advice there was, if you're not, you're not doing it right. Because you need to build a foundation you need to build your activities. You need to create those folders in Schoology that you then save in your resources to use next semester. So you've got to put the, just like anything else, you've got to put the work in up front and then it does become easier. And I'm sure you've seen it as well, but you know, the theme when I look at social media, when I talk to folks is, this, this is different. I'm learning to teach all over again. And I think this is a comment that doesn't necessarily make me popular, but it's one that I feel strongly about. It, this is where we need to go. This is where we should have been going all along. And it, it is time to shift that mindset. And I think some people can get the technology it's the mindset. It's if that mindset isn't there, but the technology is, we never really engage folks. And I will say, like you said, I came into the pandemic with years of experience of teaching online. And that doesn't mean I didn't have room to grow. So I started looking for tools and I was, I went right to social media. You say all the time, this is the university. This is the way we learn now. I went into YouTube. I went into onto teachers, Instagram pages and Facebook pages. And I said, oh, that looks like fun. I'm going to YouTube it. And then that's something I can use in a professional learning situation or as adjunct faculty. And the last thing I want to note here, interestingly enough, is when I provide professional learning online through my, my regular day-to-day -day job, I always start with a poll. And the poll says, 
what has been the best part of remote teaching? Because I don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with all of the issues folks are having. And then I have a whole list of things, um, spending time with family, having lots of coffee, you know, things like that. One of the things that I add is learning new technology. It is never the most popular response in that poll which good, better, or worse, it's, it's just kind of where we are right now. But I do think as the pandemic made me a better online instructor, um, I think folks are going to get there. Those who are ready to go there, some people, they, they just might not be ready, you know, kind of ever. And to each his own, I get that. But they're gonna they're they're starting where I was say 10 years ago and they need to build up to it. I think however some of these folks will get there faster than maybe I did just because of the evolution of things. So so when you look at the class that you're co-teaching and you're looking at your students prior to March. I'm assuming that the bulk of those candidates were actually physically going into schools. Mm-hmm. Post-March and even now, mm-hmm. those candidates are either going into all, all online environments or they're going into the hybrid where they may be there a couple of days and be online. How has that shifted how you and your co-teacher actually work with students in terms of how do you teach now in an online environment? Because you can't do the same things. You know, one of the things that I would tell in our teachers when we first started to get this transition is you're used to going bell to bell. You can't do that in an online environment. You can't dictate how this thing is going to go for 45 minutes to an hour. It's not going to happen. And do not. Now, I'm going to tell you, I told them, I said, now you're, if your administrator tells you to do something, that's above me. But I'm telling you right now, because of best practices, do not deliver online your direct instruction. Do not do 45 minutes or longer because your kids at some point, we'll start to zoom you out. This is going to happen. Now, some, and some administrators said, we're going to keep this thing 20 minutes. I was like, bravo. Mm-hmm. Some did not pay, did not do that. And then, of course, you hear complaints of they're not showing up. Okay. So how do you get them now to understand that some of the stuff that we taught you, you know, if you're working with candidates now that you worked with before March, how do you talk to them about things that we learned beforehand? Some stuff is still applicable, other Mm -hmm. stuff you gotta throw away. Mm -hmm. And then for those students that you are working with fresh, who Mm -hmm. that's all they know right now in in this moment is this environment. How do you work with them to get them to see what this can be mm-hmm. moving forward? Mm-hmm. So I do not have the opportunity to work with folks from before, but they're still in the program. So, so hopefully they're getting a little bit more from the instructors they're with now. In terms of the folks I am currently working with, um, there are some things that should not change in a virtual environment. One of them being starting the class with a very clear objective, a very clear roadmap of where folks need to be by the end of the lesson. Another thing, check for understanding. Even though we're talking about, okay, only do this for 20 minutes, I get that, but there, there's some things that need to happen within that. And I come primarily from an elementary background. I was in a K-5 school for 10 years. So that that is where a lot of my hands-on experience came from. Now, 
In the K-5 setting, we have what are called rotations or centers. It's something that hopefully six through 12 have slowly adopted and will get to because that's where we're meeting kids at their level. Mm -hmm. So if we expect independent work, which in this day and age, we often refer to as asynchronous work. And that term is being adopted. And I think that's a step in the right direction that we're, that we're using that nomenclature, that jargon to kind of force the issue that this is different. But in terms of a, a best practice that needs to still be in place, if we expect them to go into asynchronous work, we need to model that expectation. We need to make that expectation very clear. And very much like you would write your objectives on your board, you better have some slides in a folder with, with objectives and step-by-step -step directions on what the objectives are. So, you know, I think of it as this idea of freedom within form. So, like I said, there are certain things that should not go away in the virtual environment, but it's what's in between those things that we need to change. We need to, because we have this amazing luxury of doing it, we need to use video. And then we bring our students back and maybe we have a virtual discussion about that video. And then we have a live conversation, which is maybe five, 10 minutes. And then we go back out and we either research or you know do something in a folder. Hey, let's do a five question Schoology quiz because you get those results immediately. Mm -hmm. And then that's gonna tell you where you're going next. So it's the principle of checking for understanding and using that data to drive further instruction, but it looks different. We're spending less time on certain things. Um, so, you know, I, I really, for these, let's call them kids, they need to know these are the six things or whatever it might be that you need in every single lesson. Because if they're doing it virtually, they need it. If they're going into a classroom, they need it. And that's what I want them to understand. Because honestly, who knows what's going to happen? We might stay in hybrid for a while. In some cases, it's been effective. It might be all face-to-face. -face. So whatever model they work in, they need to take those essentials with them. And the rest then fills in. It's, it's the idea of teaching being both an art and a science. And so we're, we're trying to marry those two, but make sure they're hitting those essential components. So you've been doing this adjunct teaching for a while. Uh, what does the field look like? You know, you, you, there's so much that I, I, I see and hear on social media about the pay, we don't need to get into that, but uh, about the pay, about how universities are sort of scaling back on full-time tenure professors and bringing in adjuncts mm -hmm. and how adjuncts are really sort of shaping the future workforce of what higher ed should, it will look like or is looking like. What has been your experiences as an, as an adjunct overall uh, thus far. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I'm not a professor. Uh, I have not considered that as a long-term goal, but at the same time, I haven't th you know, thrown that out. And what I bring to the situation is live experience. I have lived this for 20 years. So if I were to become a tenured professor and I worked all day, every day at the university, I lose touch. I lose touch with what happens every single day in the classroom. I work with teachers right now who bring to me, this isn't working because, and we troubleshoot that. So although I am not currently a classroom teacher, I work with teachers every single day and they keep me grounded in the reality of you know, what actually happens because I can't tell them, okay, so pull these five kids into a group and teach this lesson because there's, there are things that we need to take into consideration. There are scaffolds that they need. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, I think that, like you said, adjunct is potentially the future because this is, this is a hands-on course. And I, you know, I taught a lesson to adults yesterday, let's say, and I used these three engagement strategies. So I'm going to use them with my folks because again, with my, uh, excuse me, with my university students, because one, we know engagement strategies are an important part of classroom instruction. And two, to your point, if I were a tenured professor, having done this for 10, 15 years with my university students in the lecture hall and all that, you know, stuff that the movies kind of tell us what university is, I lose that experience. So providing adjuncts who work part-time really gives the students the, the right idea of what they're jumping into. And because I do it in the education world, they get that. But I know adjuncts who are full-time nurses, let's say, and then they provide the instruction um, or, you know, or whatever the case may be. And in an MBA program, there are full-time executives instructing in those programs as well. So I would agree with you. I think adjuncts should be the future of higher education, um, but we'll have to see where that goes. I hear you. I, hear you. I know some people, they're, the grumblings uh, for that that I see, you know, is where you have people who Okay, all right, let me, let me step, take a step back. One of the f faults why I see in higher ed is they bring in students and they train them as traditional academics, mm -hmm. right? And so you go through this uh, doctoral program and it's all about the research and your dissertation and stuff like that. And these people are being trained themselves to be professors most of the time. Even though the job market isn't there for a lot of full-time 10-year professors as it was, let's say, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. right? So people are not being trained to, okay, let's take this doctorate and where can you go work in the private sector mm -hmm and still come back and, and teach, teach, let's say as an adjunct, because this is where we see the job market is going anyway. Or maybe you can, maybe you go work in government or maybe you go work in K through 12. And then again, you bring that experience, you know, back here. And so their grumblings are, I'm going through this and I'm not getting paid or mm -hmm. issues with they're bringing me in. I'm going from my associate to my assistant, but I'm not getting, I keep getting passed over for 10 years. So again, mm -hmm. they're like, okay, my money's not right. My money's not right. Things in my career is, is going here. When, for that, and, and, and we won't speak on that, but for those individuals that work in education and whether they're working for an ed tech company, you know, like School to Your Canvas, or they are in fact in a K through 12 classroom and they're looking for that side income. And maybe there may be a little, you know, risk averse yeah. to becoming a consultant, uh, but they still want to use their skills they you know they love to teach they love to share how do they get in the adjunct game right taking the experience you've had how do they prepare themselves to either be noticed mm -hmm. or even get hired by university to teach That is a good question. And I will answer it to the best of my ability because the luxury and the privilege that I have is I have held several roles. I was a teacher. I was a project manager. Within project managing, I met the Schoology folks, right? So like I have known people along the way. So I 
knew somebody from a previous role. I, I couldn't even tell you because I don't remember how we reconnected. Maybe it was LinkedIn or something like that. And she said, hey, I'm the chair of this program. Would you mind coming in to help out? So it, you might say I got noticed, right? And if I did, it was simply from doing my job over the years. And you talk about being risk averse. That is not in my vocabulary in any way, shape, or form. I left the classroom teacher position in the same district after 10 years, working towards a pension, having the great benefits, having my summers off, having seniority. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to try something new. So I moved on. I met people there. I moved on again. I met people there. And I think... Wow. I mean, for me, like you said, being noticed was was simply, I mean, for lack of a better term, getting around. I got around. I've gotten around my entire career. Um, make connections, make connections on social media, post lesson ideas on social media, um, curate collections. I think social media is a great way to get noticed. Go to conferences network at conferences. Um, I, I think social media is a good place to start, um, but we also need that real life connection as well. Like you and I can, like we had the Schoology background. I think we met at Next in person, um, but we stayed in, in connection with social media through Twitter. And, you know, at, I think attending conferences being reflective about your position, posting mm -hmm. on social media, the, the things that you are doing. And I'll give you an example. So my, my kids, my own kids just went back to school two weeks ago, which meant they were home remote learning on their Chromebooks all day. So I was able to see everything that the teachers were doing. So I said to one of the teachers, I said, you are phenomenal. I said, as far as I'm concerned, you are doing everything right in terms of this virtual learning experience. I would like you to become a guest speaker in my classroom. So there, I've made a connection with her. And the next time the program says we need more instructors, she will be the first person that I reach out to to say, apply to this. So, you know, my experience, I didn't go for this. I didn't plan on this but I have a, a huge network. And that has not only allowed me to move into this position, but you did speak on consulting. I've done consulting before. I like this a whole lot better. And the reason why is because I am shaping the future of the profession. I am saying, these are the things you should do. This is what works. Now go forth and do it. And if we put in the idea of multipliers, if they tell two people who then tell three people who then tell six people, that that's the spread. That's the ripple effect that I think will ultimately change the profession. So I don't know if that's it, you know, directly answering that question, but that has been my experience. That's all right. I'm, I'm interested. Networking. I mean, network. That's the best way to get anywhere. Network. No doubt, no doubt. I always tell people, build a network before you need it. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. I like that advice. All right, so I, I'm interested in teaching as an adjunct, but I don't know how to position myself because mm -hmm. my experience is, of course, with technology integration, and professional learning. I have project management experience based upon when we did our one-to-one. -one. We didn't hire any outside, outside consultants to tell us how to do this. We came up with our own systems of deployment, enrollment, training, and, and, and coaching and those things. But my doctorate is in educational leadership. And I don't know how many of those programs will fit my actual ex, you know, work experience, right, in terms of that. And so for me, it's kind of like, well, I don't know. Like, do I fit? 
do is there a role a course out there that fits my experience that also matches what my degree is in and there's there's a couple ways i would respond to that one i have considered adjunct work over the years and my strength is in the area of literacy and then of course technology and a couple years ago someone said hey contact this person they're the they're the chair of educational technology they've been thinking of adding a blended learning course you would be great for that so it was not created I, I did not pursue it, but the reason I share that with you is because it may be that you create a course, that you write a syllabus, that you then present to some folks in your network or at a local university or something like that. Mm. The other thing I will say is the work that I do, the course that I teach is the clinical experience for pre-service educators you have a lot to offer that group of people as do I. So you're not just teaching technology. You're not just teaching math. You're not just teaching literacy, but you're teaching folks how to be successful in the profession. And it, you know, it starts with how do you plan a lesson? How do you effectively deploy a lesson? Um, what technology is appropriate? When is technology versus you know something else appropriate? And I think you would be a good fit there because I, I do not consider myself somebody with a niche. Yes, I like data. Yes, I like technology. Yes, I like literacy, but I am not a reading specialist. I am not a technology teacher. I am all of these things. And I, like you said, I create processes. There was nothing at Schoology when I came. I think I was like the 50th, 60th person hired in the whole company. So we developed some processes, like you said, for bringing in contract trainers, for what courses needed to be offered and things like that. So there's, even though the experience is broad, there is an opportunity for somebody with a broad experience to share that given the right course. And there is always an opportunity to create a course and present it because if this is missing in, in K-12, we need to we need to get it in there in higher ed so that when folks are entering the K-12 profession, they come out with that instead of having to relearn something five, six, 10 years down the road. Well, they are relearning because I can tell you right now oh, with my sure. job, <laughs> my job, there are so many teachers who come in day one and they may have taken a technology class mm -hmm. in college, but it was, if it, it may have had current stuff. So maybe they have, maybe they learned Flipgrid or or Nearpod or Google Apps or what have you, but they did not learn those things within, let's say, the context of teaching online or how does that work in a blended learning environment? It was just sort of, hey, I'm taking this tech class uh, and I'm learning this stuff. And when I get them, it's about well, how do you how do you put this thing together, mm -hmm. right? So even when I explain to teachers that now the idea or the concept, some concepts I got Callan, Dr. Catlin Tucker, she's she's boss like that. But even now, I will tell the teacher, okay, we can do our station rotations in an online and an completely online environment. Because in Schoology, you have your individual assigned. Mm -hmm. So group one can be in this red folder mm -hmm. where you, their work will be there. Group two can be in a green folder. Mm -hmm. And then you can have, and then just have kids go through for this week and we'll do, we'll do a weekly rotation, not a rotation every whatever. So for this week, Group one is in the green folder and you do this work for the whole week. 
And then based upon your data, which again in Schoology, because you can assign you can assign standards mm-hmm. to the work they do, and you can pull that mastery report. Now you're looking at what they're what they're doing. You you know if they got it or not. And if they're good, that's that other rote, you can put them in another folder mm-hmm. for another rotation. Right. And if not, of course, you can go ahead and do what you need to do to scaffold in terms of remediation. But those are the things that I have to talk, talk to them about, mm-hmm. right? Because those are things that they did not learn mm-hmm. at the college level, mm-hmm. right? And so before we go, what is your advice to either those uh, people who are current candidates, uh, maybe at another university, uh, as well as college professors who their job right now is to prepare students to work in schools. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at schools as not returning to Mm -hmm. what was before. And if they do, given the fact that some of these schools may have spent $2 million of CARES money, right? To buy all of these devices. Mm-hmm. How dare you go back to lecture and pencil and paper, mm-hmm. sit and get, drill mm-hmm. and kill when a vaccine comes out? Like, like you, I, it boggles my mind that people would even attempt to even do that. But what is your advice to them moving forward on how to to mentally prepare right for the shift and what the classroom should look like as well as what type of skill sets should they start to invest in because as you know it's it's, it's far different to teach in that online environment or even a blend and learn environment when you have to sort of look at all this and put these pieces together that may not normally you may not normally fit because again you're you're not driving this show every second of a minute you got mm-hmm. to let go right you got to let go and let these kids do what they do and then take that information and then reshuffle and put things back together in a different way so so much i could say on that topic and a couple things to start with One, I want to say it might have been 10 years ago. Um, I had a supervisor tell me, you are very comfortable with ambiguity. She said, that is a skill that you need to take with you wherever you go. And I could have been like a mediocre teacher and maybe I was, you know, whatever. But if I were comfortable with ambiguity, I have the staying power. I have the longevity to see this through that up and down in the way the paradigm is going to shift. So I, one of the mindset features would be get yourself comfortable with ambiguity. The way things look today, they may not look like tomorrow. Um, So you be flexible, be ready to pivot. Um, you know, what I hear teachers say is I planned a whole lesson and then X, Y, and Z happened. It will, you know, that that's not going away. Like that, none of that is going away. You're going to get it. Even when we're back in, you're going to get a fire drill. You're going to get a fight. You know, when you teach kindergarten, somebody's going to be the bands and you know, that, that kind of derails things. So being comfortable with ambiguity, I think is a really important skill. It's not, I I don't know how to teach that skill. You know, I I think it just needs to be repeated kind of uh, consistently. And, you know, the other part of this, I want to share that when the group I was working with was first adopting Schoology, and this was a while ago too, this was like eight or 10 years ago. And one of the things that was often discussed is, well, if we spend money on devices, what about our textbooks? Our textbook series is old. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. These devices are the future of this. We're phasing out the textbooks. And 
people couldn't conceptualize that. It was like, well, we don't have the budget for this. Well, why not? And you know, it's, it's we have these line items in the budget. Let's reallocate, right? Because we don't need this. We don't need that anymore. We don't need that anymore. But we do need these programs. And that that's hard. Like we are so ingrained in education with the way things have been for so long. And to your point and, and to kind of the, the, the reason we came together today is this needs to start in the pre-service world. This needs to start in higher education. And we also need to be targeting the folks who are quote unquote doing it right and or the folks who are taking the risks to move in a different direction. And we need to give them a, a voice, we need to give them an audience. And that was my attempt at bringing in my daughter's teacher because she is doing it right. She continues to do it right. And I wanted future teachers to see her, to hear from her, to understand. My, my professor says, this is the way it needs to be done. So I'm gonna take really good notes and I'm gonna model myself after this person. So I, I think giving the folks who are doing it right a voice is, is a really important next step. Um, things like Catlin Tucker being required reading or at least optional book clubs, I, I think will get us there um, in a, to an extent. And, you know, I also think that um, we can't forget the pedagogy. Yes, the technology is wonderful, but it is nothing without the pedagogy. So again, I think that is where um, higher ed comes in and that, that's kind of where I am right now. Let's not forget the pedagogy. That doesn't go away. Does it change? Yes, but it's not going away. And then as we think about what does that ongoing professional learning look like for a year one teacher, for a year two teacher, because I believe most districts have kind of like this two year mentor or on onboarding type program. And how do we take the technology and the pedagogy and the application of that and continue to marry that and provide the coaching and support that folks need. So such a complex question. I mean, we could have spent the whole time talking about that one particular question, but there's there's a lot of ways to get there. And we need to, you know, just like we tell the teachers, we need to try these things. And if they're getting us in the right direction, great. If not, we scrap them and we go to the next thing. And I think that's one of the things that Catlin put in one of her books, fail often and fail fast, and then get yourself right back out there to try something new. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Jill, for coming on. You're welcome. All right. It was good to reconnect with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, people, you know how I do this. This episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe, leave your comments, share this episode. And yes, I do like the stars. But also, I'm looking for some comments and reviews because not only am I trying to be found, but I'm trying to get Oprah on the show, and I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Jill Linehan, for coming on and dropping so many gems, and I'd like to thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show. As always, people, invest in you, EDU, peace.